Good morning. If you will, turn uh, with me to Matthew 1. We're going to be looking at Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through 23, and also 1 Timothy 1, 15. Let's first look at Matthew. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, be not afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who, she has, been who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And then turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, 115, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Thus says the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word, that we would lay up the truths given to us by you in our hearts. Awaken us, awaken our hearts, awaken our minds to the beauty and the majesty of our Savior. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to set before you the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis that I want to draw out from these two texts this morning is the purpose of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just the purpose, but the sufficiency and the finality in which he has fulfilled that purpose, specifically from Matthew 1 and 1 Timothy 1. It's usually during this time of year that we visit the birth narratives of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for good reason, but I want to suggest to you that the promise given here in Matthew is not a promise to be dwelt on only at the end of the year. This isn't a December promise. This is a lifetime promise. And contained in these verses is the very heart of the gospel. For all time and in all places, it is the most precious promise ever given to men by God himself. What he has done and what he will do for us and in us 
what we could not do for ourselves. These two texts are like like a lighthouse, a, a beacon of the brightest light placed in the dead of night that shines forth the gospel, the truth, where lost men can find safety. The lighthouse of truth. The text reads, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that name Jesus, meaning God saves. Jehovah saves. He will save his people from their sins. Well, it's an indisputable fact that the Lord Jesus came into the world, that he was born in this world. There's probably never been a a life on this earth more well documented or scrutinized than the birth of Jesus. Whether it be from eyewitness testimony recorded in scripture or even secular historians documenting this birth, And we also know from the the testimony of Scripture of the identity of Jesus. We know that Jesus is is the promised seed of, of Eve from Genesis 3. He is the promised one of Abraham. He is the one born to save his people. He is both God and man. He is God with us. And though Jesus would raise him, I mean, Joseph would raise him, Jesus did not come from Joseph, but of the Holy Spirit. And he's also truly God, referenced in verse 23. He says, you will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. He is the incarnate one who took upon flesh. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conquering king of the line of David. He is the sacrificial and interceding priest of the order of Melchizedek. He is the great prophet who has made known the mysteries of God, which is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. But what of his birth and the reason why Jesus came to this earth? Why did Jesus come? Why was it necessary? Was he complete in his task? Did he do what he said he was going to do? And to what extent did Christ save? That will be the topic of this morning's sermon. We're told here in uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And likewise, in Matthew 1.21, that he shall save his people from their sins. So as we look at both of these texts, we see that Christ came to save sinners. That he was born to men to save. Now this, of course, implies that we are sinners and in need of saving. What does it mean to be saved and What are we saved from? Well, the word saved means to be rescued or to be delivered. And the implication is that 
we are in danger and that we need to be rescued from that danger because we cannot rescue ourselves. It's to imply that we need an external savior, someone who comes alongside and saves us what we cannot do for ourselves. We are subject to a terrible end, and we are in great peril. And Paul writes in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And beloved, we hear these passages so much that I'm afraid that we can start to think very little about them, that they're just a, a category in our theology, that yes, we have all fallen short, but we have fallen short of the glory of God. This is real. Do you feel the weight of that statement? All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the all used here in Romans 3 is all-encompassing. It's not as though some have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it says that all have sinned. Thus, there is no difference between men and their standing before God. Now, by this, it's not meant that there are no degrees of sin and that there is no difference between the character of unregenerate men. We know that men are different. We know that some men are quite content in less egregious sins, whereas others splurge in the grossest of sins. Yet, beloved, the, the penalty of sin is death. For the least sin to the greatest, the penalty is death. There are a great many differences between men, but at one point, all are the same. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room has fallen short of the glory of God. And notice the standard for all men. What is the, the standard for all men? The standard isn't your neighbor who is much, much worse than you. Your neighbor is not your standard. Your neighbor is not the most wicked man who's ever lived on this earth. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The standard is the thrice holy God who shuts the mouths of even the most righteous of men on earth, such as Job. Job was a righteous man, and as he continued to argue his points against his, his friends, he becomes more hostile, more upset with with what's going on, and he keeps trying to vindicate himself and vindicate himself, and finally he says, I want to stand before God and vindicate myself. What does God say to Job? He said, who are you without knowledge to question the divine plan? Tighten your belt. Let's go through some things. You never want to be in the situation where God tells you to tighten up your belt. But God shuts the mouths of the most righteous of men on this earth. Or what about when people are in his presence, such as the prophet Isaiah, who stood before the holiness of God? What did Isaiah do? He quivered, and he declared himself as undone because of the holiness before him. Because of the holiness, the standard 
that was before him. He saw God, and in an instant he knew, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I have sinned greatly. I believe if you and I really understood this, we wouldn't have an ounce of pride left in our bones. Not an ounce. Do you realize how wicked the sin of self-righteousness really is? That you declare yourself as being righteous. It's saying I am really righteous when you really aren't. And notice that this standard that God has given men does not change based on your lot in life or your status in society. The grandest kings and the lowest of servants have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. You have fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no distinction between people groups, which is Paul's argument in the first three chapters of, of Romans. Though the ethnic Jews were chosen by God for his own purpose, they were in no better standing before God's law than the Gentiles. They faced the same reality, which is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have broken God's law. And all are in great peril. So this is implied in our text that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That we are sinners and that we are in need of saving. But what of this great peril? What peril is man in? The sin of man both original and actual, is the great peril. The great peril of humanity is that in the Garden of Eden, our first representative, Adam, sinned against God, and we, along with him, were subjected to sin and misery in this life, both physical and spiritual death. Our peril is that through Adam, we have become estranged from our Creator. That that relationship that was established between God and man has been severed because of man's sin. But it's not just through Adam in which this relationship has been severed. It's we ourselves have transgressed the law of God. We ourselves have broken His commandments. We ourselves have fallen short of the glory of God. Even still worse, it's not that we've done this by accident. It's that we've delighted in this rebellion. This is the testimony of Scripture. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and men love their sin. Paul again in Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, that it's, it's evident that all can see that God is and that he has created. All have seen this. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. 
God has made it plain, and man has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have been subjected to sin and misery. And you know, there is a reason that Paul calls the wages of sin as death in Romans 6. What is a, a wage? A wage is something that you've earned, something that you've worked for. A wage is something that you are owed for your work. When you go to work each week, you labor for a certain amount of time, and you expect a certain amount of pay for your work. You get what you've earned. Well, Paul argues here, likewise, the wages of sin is death. It is what you have earned. Now listen to how thorough our Westminster Confession describes our condition before God in uh, chapter 6, point 6. It says, Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, does in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and so made subject to death, with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. The scope of that is enormous. The scope of the sin and misery in which we find ourselves is enormous. Our sin is so heinous that we are called the children of wrath by Paul in Ephesians 6. And that means we incur wrath upon us, that that is what we have earned, that we are born in sin and we grow up and we live our lives incurring the wrath of God. We think of all manner of wickedness in our thoughts and we lay them up in our hearts. We do these things. Instead of properly bearing the, the image of God in our lives, we have we have borne the image of Satan, which is one of disobedience and one of impurity, one of rebellion. And added to our misery is divine justice, which is justice which the holy God deals out perfectly. And this, this sin and misery is both inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, we suppress the truth of God and we worship false gods gods which are nothing in this world. We think of all manner of wickedness in our thoughts. Outwardly, sin creates destruction in our lives and the lives around us. Animals, the environment, are all subjected to this groaning under the curse. Illness, disease, old age, suffering the evil of others, slander, ridicule, Destruction, loss of jobs, financial crisis, tyrannical rulers, tyrannical fathers, drug addictions, wrecked marriages, abuse, murder, and a million other things. The curse of sin and misery that we find ourselves in. Our larger catechism, question 28, asks, What are the punishments of sin in this world? I want you to listen closely. The punishments of sin in this world are either inward as Blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, 
or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sake and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments together with death itself. What a list. The mind is morally corrupt, warped, and debased. We believe what, uh, lies and we worship the creation rather than the creator. We reject the fountain of life. We resist God's goodness. Our conscience shames us. And we don't thirst for righteousness. We thirst to do wickedness. And the very worst part is that we love doing all these things. The very, very worst part is that we have no idea how wretched, poor, blind, and naked we really are. Oh, how heinous is our <coughs> sin and misery. But not just that, not just in the life here, but the life to come. Everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God. And the most grievous torments in body and soul in hellfire forever. This is the wage of sin. So I ask you, do you think lightly of your sin? You shouldn't. The sin and misery that we are under is all-encompassing. It touches every area of life. Nothing goes untouched, and we groan under sin and misery. So we are sinners, and we are subjected to sin and misery because of our sin. And it's implied in 1 Timothy and Matthew 1. And you may think, wow, this is a, a good Christmas message, isn't it? You stand before, before us, and you say you're going to talk about the birth of the Savior, but you confront with sin. But dear beloved, unless you see your sin you will not see the beauty of the Savior. What of Christ's mission? Why did Christ come? Why the incarnation? Our two texts say that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And notice that he isn't just a Savior. He isn't one of many saviors. He isn't a part-time savior. He isn't a half-a-cup savior. He isn't a half-measure savior. The text doesn't read that Jesus Christ came into the world to partly save sinners and to help you save yourself. He came to save sinners. He is the savior and the only savior. Jesus Christ has a monopoly on the salvation business. If salvation were a business, he would be the sole proprietor. He is the owner. He is the author of salvation. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given to mankind by which we must be saved. He is the Savior. There is no one to come after him to make up for what he is lacking, for he lacks nothing. Jesus said himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the exclusive Savior. 
1 John 4 verse 14 tells us, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior for the world. That he is the Savior of all mankind. And that no one is saved unless it be by faith of Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing passages in the birth narratives comes from the Gospel of Luke. And Luke begins his narrative by telling of the, the traveling Mary and Joseph making their way to Bethlehem to register for the census. Because Joseph was from Bethlehem, it was mandatory for him to make his way there to register in the town where he was from. While there, Mary goes into labor and gives birth to Jesus. And in that same region, just a few hills away, were shepherds watching over the flock by night. Now, no doubt that those shepherds have been there quite some time tending to their flock to ensure that they were safe. So while they were out there in the field, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord, along with an angelic host, appears before them. So they're just out taking care of their sheep in a starry night, and an angel of the Lord appears, and the hosts of heaven appear before them. Now, I'm sure this was a frightening sight for them. Luke says that the glory of the Lord surrounded the angel and that they were afraid, that this sight was so grand and so majestic that, that the angel had to say to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. Think about that. These shepherds are minding their flock when this angel of the Lord appears. And a whole heavenly host of angels appear and tell them that the good shepherd has been born. And it's striking to me that the angel of the Lord says to these shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And then later he says, on earth, peace among people with whom he is pleased. Now, beloved... In light of the fall and the curse, everything that I've previously said, in light of those things, how can this be said by angels to men? In light of our, our, our depth of depravity, the deadness of our hearts, and our propensity to involve others in every manner of evil, how in the world... Would there, could there ever be peace between wicked man and a holy God? It's because a Savior has been born. A Savior has been born to men. 
the one who will save his people from their sins, was lying in a manger just a few hills away. That's how the angel could say, peace to men in light of their sin. You see, beloved, the category of peace should be the last thing that we think about when we think of standing before the throne room of heaven. We should not think of peace. If we could see our sin for what it is and see God for who he really is, the last thing on our minds when we enter the presence of God is peace in any manner, shape, or form. Peace. Peace before the Holy One, the one who shuts the mouths of the righteous, the one who makes prophets quake, the one who rightly punishes sin. The angel says, peace be to men. But the angel says to the men, to the shepherds, peace be among the people for whom he is pleased. And of the hosts, that word host here is a military term used to mean an army. Uh, it would be described, it describes the might of a particular ruler. The larger the host, the more mighty the, the ruler. Throughout the Old Testament, many times God is called the Lord of hosts, meaning the, the Lord of armies, the, the sovereign king who conquers and who has at his disposal legions and, and all things. And he is the strongest and he is the mightiest. But you, here you have the heavenly hosts of heaven appearing before these shepherds saying, Peace, as if to say, ceasefire. Now imagine an army saying, there is now a ceasefire between God and man because of a baby born a few hills away. How? How is it possible? How can it be that sinners can stand in the presence of the Holy One? As it was said in Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is by the, the coming of Jesus that men can have peace with God, that the animosity and the hostility between God and man is torn down. That way is a person. And notice from these texts the certainty of the promise. He will save sinners. This isn't guesswork on behalf of the angel speaking to Joseph. The angel isn't speculating on the ability of Jesus to save sinners. The angel doesn't say Good news and great joy born to you is a man who might be able to save sinners. He will save his people. It is something that is surely true, that he will do it. He will not attempt to save. He will not try to save. He will not give it his best shot and come up short. He will save his people. The victory of his mission is so certain, so set in stone, 
that his very name, Jesus, would reflect his complete and total victory over sin and death. Calvin makes note of the importance of this fact by saying, When the Son of God came to us clothed in flesh, he received from the Father a name which plainly told for what purpose he came. And what was his power? And what we had a right to expect of him. This is his name, Jesus. God saves. So what are we to expect of this man? To save. His work among men would again not be guesswork. It was evident to all and to the whole world by prophecy and by his name and by his purpose, by his power, what we ought to expect of him and what he accomplished. It was evident from the very beginning that the child born of Mary would be the savior of the world. Evident from the beginning. Now please listen closely. This is of the utmost importance. And I know that you've heard the gospel preached a thousand times here. But please listen. Open your ears to the word of the Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy statement. Now that's an interesting phrase used by an apostle who is writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is a trustworthy statement. Well, why did he say that? Isn't all scripture trustworthy? So why would he say that this is trustworthy? Is Paul doubting his own words in other places, but here he's sure of it? No. He intends to impress upon you the realness of the statement and the seriousness of the matter. This is literally a life and death situation. The truthfulness and, re and realness of the statement made here by Paul determines whether or not you will spend eternity with God or an eternity in hell. He says this is a trustworthy statement that Christ came into the world to save sinners. It is Christ who saves sinners. It is Christ who saves completely by himself for his own purpose. It is his, his own work and that work is so complete and so set in stone that it could be no other way. It will never change. The gospel will never lose power. It will never diminish. There will never be a need for anyone to come after him to make up for what he's lacking. It is the gospel. It is the good news to men. It is this cry of peace. Good tidings of great joy have been given to you, and that is through a person, Jesus Christ. It is the message of peace, if you would but trust it. If you would but turn from your sins and trust him, this is the good news, beloved. The birth of a Savior who will save his people from their sins. The good news is that Christ came to die for sinners. And we are sinners, and we are in need of saving. But how? How did he do it? We know that we are in need of saving. We know that he did the saving. How did he do the saving? 
Christ accomplished salvation for all those who place their trust in him through his life, death, and resurrection. He lived for us, and he died for us, and he was raised for us. Through his atonement, we have free pardon, which delivers us from the wrath and curse of God. The very thing that we are subjected to, we are delivered from. That which we have earned, our wages, what we incurred for ourselves, that wretched sin and misery was placed upon the Savior, and he bore it for us. That is the good news. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, that while we were yet helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see him for who he really is? Do you see him as the savior of your sins? He is the savior. And if you believe in him, he has borne your sin. Your sin was nailed to the cross and died with him. Do you see that? Do you see the importance of the birth of Jesus Christ? What about the, the hymn? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Now those phrases don't typically go together. My sin, oh the bliss, this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul. Peace. Shalom. It is well with my soul. Things we don't deserve to say the things that have been freely given to us. Do you see that if you have placed your faith in him, it is truly well with your soul, that you have peace with God. There is no more enmity, that it is well with your soul. That when you go to bed tonight and you lay in bed and you know that you've sinned all week, you lay in bed you can say, it is well with my soul, because another has borne your sin. What a glorious thought, isn't it? There is no guilt in life or death for you to bear. No guilt. The God-man lived in full obedience to the law of God. He was killed by the hands of men and bore the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. He died, he was buried. Three days later, he rose again in victory over sin and death and over the grave. And that those who are in him are saved from their sin. This is the good news given to men. Peace to you. This is the only good news. 
By his life, death, and resurrection, we have been reconciled to God by Jesus the Savior. Also, the salvation wrought by Christ is total. Just as sin and misery was all-encompassing, so too is the salvation given us in Christ. It is not lacking. By the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior, we have been reconciled to God. The perfect righteousness of Jesus has been freely given to us. He has justified us. We are, we are truly saved and rescued and delivered from the penalty of our sin because Jesus bore our sin. He took the condemnation that we deserve and by faith imputes to us his righteousness. And by this, we have peace with God. We have eternal life. Not only that, we are continually being saved in sanctification. The Father and the, the Son pours out his Spirit, giving us the ability to walk in the Spirit, in newness of life, in glorification. We are saved and made new where the, the stain of sin and death are completely removed and we will spend an eternity with him, the one who laid down his life for the ungodly. The, the salvation of Jesus is total. It's, it's complete. It's everything. And what a salvation that we have been given, beloved. What good news of great joy that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. What a great salvation. What a work that has been done for hopeless and helpless sinners. Matthew Henry comments that Jesus saves his people from the guilt of sin by the merit of his death, from the dominion of sin by his grace. In saving them from sin, he saves them from wrath and the curse and all misery here and hereafter. His salvation is total. And oh, the greatness of our Savior that he should die so that we may live. And he accomplished this by himself. What a great salvation. What great peace we have. Now let me ask you, those of you who have professed faith in Christ, in this great salvation, who've heard the gospel preached, and who's made a profession of faith, the author of Hebrews asks in chapter 2, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How can we escape if we neglect the greatest news we've ever heard? How can we possibly escape the, the wrath and curse of God, the sin and misery in this life and in the next, if we neglect the very person who has wrought such a great salvation for us? The answer is you can't. You cannot escape if you neglect such a great salvation. There is no other escape. There is no other way. Earlier in Hebrews 2, the author exhorts us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard 
lest we drift away. And when you think of something drifting, a boat often comes to mind. If the boat isn't anchored down in something, if it has nothing that, that it's holding on to, or if the anchor is not cast over the boat itself, what happens to the boat? The boat just drifts away wherever the, the waves and the wind takes it. Who knows where? And this is what the author of Hebrews means. Later on in Hebrews, the author calls our hope, this very hope that we've been given in the promised Savior born to Mary, this hope is the anchor of the soul. It is firm. It is secure. And that Christ is the solid rock in which we must be anchored. How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Therefore, we must cling to him and cling to his word, else we too will be an unanchored boat, drifting down the seas of change. We must cling to the hope that what Christ has done for us is enough. It is sufficient for our salvation. The thing that we could not do ourselves, he has done for us. When you come to church, when you pray, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, which we will be tonight, when you commune with your fellow Christians, let me ask, is your heart in it? Is your heart in worship? Is your heart in the Savior? Is there somewhere else that you would rather be than here? Is your mind somewhere else? I can't answer those questions. Elders can't answer those questions. Only you know if your heart is in it. Only you know your thoughts. Dear friends, are you neglecting such a great salvation? Such a salvation that has been extended to you by God. Let me close with this. Why? Why did Christ come to this earth? Why did the, the second person of the Trinity descend from heaven where he was properly worshipped and glorified to take upon flesh among a people who despised and neglected him? Why did the, the prince of life come to die? So that your sins may be wiped away if you would place your faith in him. But what are the motivation? We know that Christ came to save sinners. What was the motivation? I'm sure that this is a passage that is familiar with you, but don't let familiarity, oh, can you say, don't let your familiarness to this uh, be lost on the passage. John 3.16. I'm sure you've heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you understand the, the glory and the wonder in that verse? We're so familiar with it. We see it 
everywhere. It's on plaques everywhere, right? Do we get it? He sent his son to save us. For God so loved the world. What was the motivation behind this great story of redemption? Love for his people. Love for his people. Behind the drama of redemption is God's love for his people. It is an unmerited love that he has for you if you are of his flock. Dr. Sproul writes, why did Jesus come? Listen, because of his great, arresting, gripping, abiding love for his sheep. For all those whom the Father had given him. Because of his unbelievable love for his bride, which is the church. God loves you if you are of his fold. So I, I say to you this morning, do not neglect the greatest news that you've ever heard. Do not be the man of Hebrews 2. Do not be the woman of Hebrews 2. Do not treat this as a trivial matter. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Do you see your sin for what it is? Do you see the greatness and the beauty of the Savior who has borne our sins? If you are of his flock, of his fold, know that he is for you, that he loves you, and that he's set his love upon you from the foundations of the earth, that God chose you and that he, he sent his one and only son to die for you, to bear sin and misery for you, that, that you can have life in him. Receive the same message that was delivered to the shepherds while they were watching over their flock by night. It is to you, dear Christian, that God has given you good tidings of great joy. Great joy. That you can have joy. You can have shalom. You can have peace because one has borne your sin for you. For there has been a Savior born to you who is Christ the Lord. And that Christ, Jesus, bore your sins and discharged your debt. There is no condemnation for you in this life or the life to come. For the Lamb of God has taken away your sin. And if you're like me, who gets a glimpse of the wickedness of sin, you try to rebuild enmity. You yourself try to say, no, I've sinned. There's now hostility again between me and God because I have sinned so greatly again and I still wrestle with sin. So my heart tries to build enmity between me and God. No, there is no more condemnation. Repent of your sins. They are cast far away. Jesus has done this for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Think of this, beloved. Th think of how wild this is. How unbelievable this is. 
that you can stand before the courts of heaven in front of the holiness of God, in front of Jesus Christ, you can stand in the courts of heaven and be assured that Christ's mission on this earth was complete and was total. And that he has saved you from your sin. And that you can stand in that courtroom and know that there is no condemnation for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. How radical is that? Those who have sinned so greatly can stand before the holy God and not perish, but can rejoice. Good news, great tidings to the people of earth. For those who place their faith in Christ will be saved. It is certain, and you can know that it is finished, and that he has done it, and that your good works need not speak for you. His works speak, and if you will place your faith in him, you will be saved. And if you have already done so, you are free from the guilt of sin, and you have the promise of eternal life in the Savior. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to be born of a woman, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, to die, to be resurrected, so that you may live, and so that you may know the one who's created you and who loves you. Take great comfort in that. Rejoice. Rejoice in that truth that God loves you and that he will preserve you until the end. And when that end comes, you will be with him forever. What a good news we have. What a great salvation we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation that you have given us. We pray that you would awaken our hearts, awaken our minds to, to the true beauty and greatness and goodness of the Savior who came for us, who bore our sins, who died, who was resurrected so that we may have life in him, that we can be with him and with you forever. Father, help us to, to truly understand that beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. For Christ's sake.